Would you take your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 2? We'll be looking at verses 17 into chapter 3 this morning. Thank you. And as you're turning there, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some uh, under the seats where you're sitting. You could use those and follow along. Uh, I want to thank uh, Pastor Justin for sharing, bringing the word last week. I thought he did a great job on the message. And I just think it's great for all of you to be able to hear from our youth pastor and to hear his heart as he shares from the word and to get a, maybe a glimpse of the kinds of things that he is teaching uh, our students and how he works down in that uh, youth ministry as well. So please pray for him, pray for Justin, pray for Terry and the work that they're doing with our students. Let me read for us as we begin a part of this passage. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 17, and read the first half of it, and then we'll come to the second half as we go through the text. But listen to the word of the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying that all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? And see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father, as we have worked our way through these minor prophets, it has been amazing how relevant their message is for today. And once again, we see in this text and what we're going to look at this morning that you have a word for us. I pray that you would give me the grace and the words to speak it, and I pray that you would give us the ears to hear what it is that you want us to take away today. What is it that you want to say to us this morning as we think about our own life and relationship with you? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. When life is hard we can be tempted to doubt God's goodness, or at least his plan for our life. Pastor Jason shared a few weeks ago in one of his messages how hard this trial has been in their life, dealing with Kim's cancer, and the challenge that that has been, and how it's affected their time, and their schedule, and their plans, and all of those things that you think about. And yet, he would say that he knows it is God's strength and the strength that comes from his word that is really carrying them through. And it is your prayers and it's the support that you have given that have made such a huge difference to them in their life. 
But there are times when we go through difficulties, whether it be health-related or financial trials or struggles with our children or things that are going on where we can wonder, God, what are you doing? What's going on here and why is this happening to me? I mean, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to follow you. Why is this going on in my life right now? And sometimes the stories we hear in the news can cause us to wonder about God's justice and his care for his people. I mean, when you hear stories of things like ISIS in the Middle East and this senseless slaughter of Christians that is taking place and their brutality and the means that they are using to accomplish their ends, it's awful. Or when you hear stories in the news about Planned Parenthood and the killing of babies and the selling of baby parts, it's appalling. We hear stories of child abuse, sex trafficking, the shooting that took place in Virginia of the news reporters, and you just wonder what is going on in our world. And there are times when we can ask the question, God, don't you see? And how can you wait so long? This past week, I finished reading David Garrison's book, A Wind in the House of Islam. It's a very good book. And I will say on one side, it's very encouraging what he talks about. On the other side, it's very sobering. The encouragement is that David Garrison is talking about movements to Christ that are taking place in the Islamic world that haven't happened in 1,300 years. In the last 15 years, we've seen more movements out of Islam to Christ than we have in the previous centuries. And it's happening in what he describes in all nine houses of Islam. I mean, if you talk about North Africa or the Middle East or uh, Central Asia or Asia or Indonesia or Africa, there are movements that are taking place. And he defines a movement as more than a hundred churches that have been started and more than a thousand converts. And there are over 70 of those movements today, which is very encouraging. Part of it is because of the violence that they see in Islam and the reaction of the extremists, but it is definitely a work of the Holy Spirit that is changing hearts. And yet at the same time when I read that book, it was so sobering to also hear about the conditions that these believers are living under. Many have lost their lives. Many have come to know Christ and they've been killed by families, by others who have disowned them. Some, in some cases, just lose their family or lose their work but others have been tortured and killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And we hear those stories and we think of how this has been going on for centuries and there are times when we can cry out and wonder, God, how long, how long, when will you come? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt that personally or by things that you have heard in the news? Well, you are not alone. We see it in Scripture we see it in Psalm 73, for example, when Asaph wrestled with the question of why do the wicked prosper? God, I don't get it. Why does it seem like they're being blessed and we are struggling? We hear it in the voice of the prophet Habakkuk when he looked at what God was doing with Israel and he looked at how God was using Babylon to judge Israel and he asked God, how? How can you do that? I mean, they're even worse than we are. How can you look upon evil? And we hear it in Revelation 6 in the voice of the martyrs 
the voice of the martyrs in heaven who cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How long? Well, that is what was happening here in the book of Malachi. But in this case, they crossed the line. They crossed the line from longing for his return to actually accusing God of injustice. And they came to the point where some of them were saying, you know, if God doesn't care, I don't care either. And I'm just going to live my life the way that I choose. And God answered their objections very powerfully. How did God answer them? Well, there are two things we see in this text. Number one, he tells us that our God is just. Our God is just. They had wearied the Lord with their complaints. As we've gone through Malachi, we see that he's really a a master at this in the way that he brings up their objections or their questions that they were asking, and he really answers them. He uses them against their kind of opposition to the Lord. And so he talked about this uh, complaint that they had been making, how they had wearied him, and they called the service of God a burden. And here they are kind of defending themselves again, you know, and they're saying, who us? You know, how have we wearied him? By saying that all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. They wearied God by claiming that God has no standards of good and evil. In fact, he even blesses the wicked. It says here in verse 17 that the Lord is pleased with them. That's what they were saying. They looked at what was going on. They thought, they're being blessed. God must be pleased with them. I don't get it. But you know that's how Asaph felt in his psalm, and he wrestled with that question. And he said, this is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth, and surely in vain I have kept my, eye, my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. He was wrestling with this question because he looked at his struggles. He looked at how others were prospering. It didn't add up to him. And he struggled with that. And he said, God, what are you doing? But Asaph caught himself. And he said, as for me, my feet had almost slipped, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I almost slipped. What was it that kept Asaph from crossing the line, if you will, to accusing God of injustice? It was when he entered the house of the Lord. It was in worship of God and listening to his word that he perceived their end. And he understood that God doesn't settle all accounts in this life. And that this is not the final day of accounting when the books will be open and the deeds of men will be disclosed. And Asaph worshipped the Lord and asked for his forgiveness. The people in Malachi's day crossed the line. And again, as I said, they were really coming to this attitude that if God doesn't care, I don't care either. And not only did they claim that God had no standards of good and evil, they accused God of a lack of justice. They said, where is the God of justice? This isn't fair. Here we are, a people, we've come out of captivity, we've gone through these very horrible years, and now we've come back and we're trying to rebuild and we're still kind of struggling here and we're not seeing God's blessing. What's happened? 
And they accused God rather than looking at their own heart. And how did God answer this charge that he is not doing anything or that he's not just? God strongly rebuked their accusation in chapter 3, verse 1. And he said, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. I will send my messenger. I will come. But the Lord will come in judgment, and it may not be as pleasant as you think. You see, in their mind, they were wanting God to come, to show up, so that their enemies would be defeated, so that they would be on top and everybody else would be on the bottom and that the good times would roll, you know, that they'd be prosperous, they'd be doing well, and all these things would be made right. And, okay, God, come on, let's do this. And God says, not so fast, not so fast. Let's talk about your heart. When we go back to these verses, they're very interesting. What is being prophesied here? Who is the one who is speaking? It is God, Yahweh. It is the Lord who is speaking these words through Malachi. And who is the messenger that he is going to send? Well, he's the forerunner of the Messiah. He is John the Baptist. And all of the gospel writers identify him in that way, that John was the one who would come, who would prepare the way of the Lord. And who is this one who is going to come? Who is this Messiah? Well, did you notice what he said? He will prepare the way before me. This is God speaking, and he is saying he will prepare the way before me. It is a statement that the one who is to come is divine. He is the Lord. The word that's used there is Adonai. He is Jesus. He is that second member of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he will come to his temple. And you think about that in Jesus' ministry, that's exactly what happened in his life. I mean, he was brought there by Mary and Joseph for his dedication. He came there as a young boy. Remember when he stayed and he was dialoguing with the priests and the rabbis and they they were amazed at his understanding of the word. He came there in his ministry, overthrew the money changers, and he said that my house will be called a house of prayer. And he was there at his death, rejected by men, arrested, beaten, crucified, put to death. Jesus, the Son of God. It was the Lord they rejected. And it is this one who Malachi prophesied would one day come. But he goes on to ask this question in verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. You know, he's putting together the two comings of Christ into one event. And we see that often in the Old Testament where these prophets spoke of the day of the Lord as one event and yet we know that they're separated by at least 2,000 years. I mean, Christ has come and in that first coming, there were things that he accomplished. That was the time when he came to offer his life as an atonement for our sins. 
Jesus himself will even pick up on this when in um, the Gospel of Luke, for example, when he took the scroll of Isaiah and he began to read it and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. And he talked about all the things that we would, he would do in his ministry as he brought healing and comfort and release to the captives and the prisoners. But Jesus stopped that reading in verse 2, Isaiah 61, 2, right in the middle. And he cut it off before the words say, and he will bring the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't do that in his first coming, but he will when he comes again. That there is a day coming when Jesus will come to judge the world in righteousness and truth. And he will establish his kingdom and he will bring judgment upon those who oppose him. And so when he comes, it will be to refine his people and to judge his enemies. He'll be like this refiner's fire. And that is such a a beautiful picture of what God wants to do in our life. When a refiner is working with metals like silver and gold and he is purifying them so that they are useful and they are pure, he has to heat them. And he has to, in a sense, boil off or remove all of the dross that is part of that. And he does that again and again, stirring and heating, stirring and heating, until the process is complete. And the process is not complete until the refiner can look into that vessel and see the image of himself in that silver or gold. And I think about that with what God does for us. That God refines us and purifies us until he can see the image of himself in us. That's why we go through trials. That's why we are tested and refined. That's why he doesn't let us get away with our sin. It's why he deals with us as a loving heavenly father. It's why he disciplines us so that we might display his glory and become more and more like his son. And the Lord was going to do that with the Levites. And the day would come when they would offer acceptable offerings to him. And what Malachi is doing here is he's using Old Testament images to speak of a future day when, God's, when God will be worshipped in righteousness and truth. And there'll be no sin in the way, but we will be able to come before the Father with a right heart and worship him as he deserves. He will judge those who are sorcerers, who deal in the occultic activities or worship other gods. He'll judge adulterers, those who destroy marriage and the family. He'll judge perjurers, those who lie and slander and falsely accuse their neighbors. He'll judge the defrauders who steal from others or withhold what is their due. He'll judge the oppressors who oppress the widows, the orphans, the alias, those aliens, those who have no rights in that society. And he'll come and watch over all of them. But these are not the only sins that he will judge. It is just representative of those who reject God and his work. So be careful what you ask for. You say you want the Lord to be just. You want him to be to return, are you ready for his coming? The Lord waits because he is merciful. 
not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But he will come. And secondly, God answered the charge that he is unfaithful, that he has not kept his promises. And he answered that in verses 6 to 12. Listen to the text. God says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. And then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Our God is faithful. This was the second area of complaint. They charged God with not keeping his word. And how did he answer them? He said, I, the Lord, do not change. This is a statement about God's character about his attributes, that he is immutable. He does not change. It's a statement about his word, that he keeps his promises, and he tells them, in fact, that's why you are not destroyed. That's why I kept you through the Babylonian captivity. That's why I kept this remnant and brought you back into the land. The Messiah has not yet come, the one who was foretold, and he will come. And God preserved their line. And kept his word. And even today, the fact that Israel exists as a nation is a testimony to God's promises. God is not through with Israel yet. And no other nation has been so scattered and so persecuted, yet survived as a distinct people. In spite of their unfaithfulness, God has been faithful. And the remedy for their sin is to return to me and I will return to you. It's the same message that Zechariah preached over a hundred years before. Return to me in repentance. And once again, they ask the question. And they say, God, well, how are we to return? And the answer that God gives is really quite surprising when he says, in tithes and offerings. How are we to return? Well, let's take a look at your giving. I mean, that is surprising. I mean, we wouldn't have been as surprised if God had said, I want you to turn from sorcery or I want you to turn from adultery or from lying or cheating or stealing or any of these other things that were listed there. But God says, I want to look at what you bring before me in worship. And he challenged them in this area. You see, under the old covenant, the people were to give a tithe of their income to the Lord. And a tithe is 10%. It's a tenth. It goes all the way back to Abraham gave a tenth of what he had received from the Lord to Melchizedek. 
And it's carried on under the law and it carries on in principle into the New Testament. The way that it worked in the Old Covenant was that the money that the people gave, their tithe, was used to support the Levites who served at the temple. And then the Levites were to give a tithe of their income and that was given to the priests for their work. And the people weren't doing it. Instead, we saw earlier, they were bringing animals that were blind and lame and worthless. They were giving God leftovers. And God said, it's because of you that the rain hasn't come. It's because of you that the crops are bad. It's because of you that your economy is struggling. It's because of you that you're dealing with all of these diseases and insects. You are under a curse, the whole nation. The answer repent and put God first in your worship. Give him your heart and give him your gifts. And God gets very specific and he says, bring the whole tithe to me and see if I will not pour out a blessing until there is no more need. It's an amazing verse, an amazing passage when he actually says, test me in this. I mean, you know, try me, do this, bring your tithe, Continue to do that for a period of time. See what I do. Wow. Well, nowhere in the New Testament does it say specifically that we should tithe. The New Testament instead talks about generous giving. It talks about sacrificial giving. It talks about proportionate giving according to your income that you would give back to the Lord. And you see verses like this, like where Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. It'll be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So sometimes people ask, well, how much should we give? Well, the answer is that depends. How much do you want to be blessed? I mean, here Jesus is saying that, you know, here is a principle of giving that when you give, God gives back to you. And the measure you use is the measure that he chooses to use in return. Wow. In 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 8, Paul talks about this same principle. And he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And you just hear in that last verse, I mean, God is able to meet your needs and to make all all grace, I mean, abound to you so that in all things, all times, having all that you need, do you hear that word all showing up over and over again? God can take care of what you need. And I think that's the reason that this came up in this area of God, are you faithful? You know, do you keep your promises? And God is saying, I am. But the reason that you are not experiencing it is because you have been trying to shortchange me. And you've been cheating God. You've been robbing from him. And could it be that the reason that you are struggling as you are is because your giving is a reflection of your heart? Wow. 
That's why when we talk about giving in the New Testament, we say that the tithe is still a good place to start. I mean, if you understand God's grace and the law, grace is always more generous. It always just exceeds what was asked in the law. And so when we look at what we have been given and we understand all that we have in Christ, how can we not give back to him? You know, we've been blessed as a church because of your generous giving. And God has been good to us and allowed us to minister in so many ways in our community and around the world. And many of you do tithe. You have made that the discipline, a spiritual discipline in your life. And if I asked you, I would guess that I could hear stories from all of you of how God has provided in amazing ways. I know he has for us through the years, and it's something that we taught our sons because we wanted them to practice this principle of giving back to the Lord. And it is amazing how he provides. And it's not financially always. It's, it's in the blessings that comes. It's in participating in his work. It's in um, you know, seeing God use you in the lives of other people. We're hearing the stories of missionaries and people who have come to know Christ because you gave. I mean, when you give to the Lord and you give in our offering, every day you're ministering to children, to students, to adults in our church, our community. You are sharing in benevolences with those who are in need. You're helping people come to know Christ. Whenever we put a white rose up here that symbolizes somebody who's come to know Christ, you share in that. And I know it's a sacrifice. I know that when you give to the Lord, there are other things that you could spend that money on. But that's what an offering is about. It's about giving because we value the Lord and His work more than we value other things. And we give back to Him because of how much He has blessed us. And I would challenge you, if you have never tithed before, and you've never started that practice, would you be willing to do that for three months, six months, a period of time, and just say, okay, Lord, I'm going to take you at your word, and I'm going to put you first, and I'm going to begin this discipline of giving, and I'm going to trust you to provide for my needs. And then pray and watch and see what God will do. God is faithful. You know, there's a story I want to tell that's really interesting on how um, our times have changed. And I know that giving to the Lord like this is countercultural. It always has been, but even more so today. And I think one of the ways that that's reflected is just even in our culture in a board game that's called the Game of Life. Are you familiar with the Milton Bradley game, the Game of Life? Maybe some of you have even played it. What I didn't know was the history of this game. It actually started in 1798 before Milton Bradley was even born. There was a board game that came from England to the United States that became popular. And it was called the New Game of Human Life. Acquiring virtues sped you through the game while vices slowed you down. Parents were encouraged to play this game with their children. And the game's main point was that life is a voyage that begins at birth, that ends at death. God is at the helm. Fate is cruel. Your reward lies beyond the grave. And the game taught principles of character and godliness, of giving and generosity, and it rewarded those kind of 
actions. Well, in 1860, then Milton Bradley picked up on this, invented a simple board game he called the checkered game of life. The good path included honesty and bravery. The difficult path included idleness and disgrace. Industry and perseverance led to wealth and success. And Bradley described it as a highly moral game that encourages children to lead exemplary lives and entertains both old and young with the spirit of friendly competition. Then in 1960, the Milton Bradley Company released a commemorative edition called simply The Game of Life, sold 35 million copies. In this game, you earn money, buy furniture, and have babies. Vices and virtues are non-existent. The winner of the game is the one who at life's day of reckoning makes the most money and retires to millionaire acres. Then in 1990, Milton Bradley uh, designed the game to make it less about money and they emphasized good deeds like saving an endangered species or solving the pollution problem. However, the only reward for these good deeds is cash and you can earn as much by winning at a TV reality show as you can by dealing with pollution problems. And then in the 2011 version, players can attend school, travel, start a family, or do whatever they want. If they earn enough points, they can reward themselves with a sports car. There's no end or last square to the game. You can stop anytime. The box says a thousand ways to live your life. You choose. Values are up for grab. You get as many points scuba diving as you get donating a kidney. Really? <laughs> and the description on the website says, do whatever it takes to retire in style with the most wealth at the end of the game. Is that all there is to life? I mean, is that, is that what it's about? I mean, that sounds more like the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, who thought that I'm going to build bigger barns and save more stuff and I'll take life easy. There's more to life than that. This life is about more than money. It's about more than saving for a comfortable retirement. This life is about knowing God and walking with Him every day. It's about being part of His family in the body of Christ and joining in His work. Jesus said, my will is to do the will of him who sent me. What's God's will for us? It's to walk with him. It's to know him and love him and to serve him. And when we live that way, we are blessed. We are blessed. And we see those blessings in this life and especially in the life to come. When tempted to doubt God's goodness, Remember that God is just and that you can trust him. And remember that God is faithful. His word is true. He keeps his promises and you can depend on him. Let's pray. Father, our world is changing, but you are not. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And Father, I pray that you would Help us as we walk with you and we see the challenges of life and we experience trials and difficulties, illness, frustrations at work or struggles financially. But God, you are faithful. You are there and you will see us through. And help us, Father, to put you first in our heart and in our life and 
in our offerings, that you would be honored and glorified, for you are a great king, says the Lord Almighty. And we pray this in your name. Amen.